This is Tom Capone, and you are listening to Spoilers Alerts with the inaugural episode of my StoryCorps Conversations. StoryCorps is a meaningful and authentic experience where you can take part in an interview that will share your life stories and experiences with our listening audience. It is our hope to preserve and share humanity's stories in order to build connections between people and create a more just and compassionate world. I hope you enjoy this episode and those that follow. Good morning. This is Tom Capone with StoryCorps, and I'm here with Michael and Hope Coleman. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We are both, or all three of us, are at the Oceanside Library, and once again, thank you to the library for allowing us to use their beautiful facility here in Oceanside, New York. Before we begin our conversation, let me just remind our listeners that the mission for StoryCorps is to preserve and share humanity's stories in order to build connections between people and create a more just and compassionate world. So having said that, I thank you for being a part of this. And I have to ask you right up front, Michael and Hope, how did you come about to uh, set up a time for us to come together to be a part of a StoryCorps conversation? Our daughter saw a flyer about this and sent us an email with exclamation points, you must do this. And that was what it was. (laughs) So we made a phone call and made an And my son's been bothering me to do this for years and years, so it just was the right, the right, so I was going to ask you what your motivation was, but it sounds as if the family has been asking you to do this. Uh, how many? You mentioned your son. How many children do you have? Two. Uh, our daughter and our son. Mm-hmm. And we, we ask how old they are. Joanna's 37. My son's 35. And are they both living locally? or? No, uh, well, we live with our daughter, and that's part of our story, and her, her husband and our two grandchildren here in Oceanside. <coughs> My son... Work is at in Lansing, Michigan. He works for Michigan State University, and he's so he's been in Michigan for about well, about fifteen years now. So, again, thank you for being a part of this. And why don't you uh, share with us about how uh, you you came to become residents of Oceanside? Well, we lived in Lynbrook for thirty five or thirty six years. Uh, I had a health issue. I was told to get my affairs in order. Uh, my, I was on my last legs. Uh, we had a beautiful big house in Lynbrook uh, that we not only lived in for 35 years, but we also took in students from all over the world to live with us. We had this large house. It was, uh, so I think for the 35 years, we only lived as a, as a family unit for one, that were, where other people that didn't belong there weren't. We had as many as seven students living with us at one time. So that went on for years and years. But when I was told I was ill, uh, the uh, I didn't want my wife to live by herself. Uh, my daughter lived a mile, a couple of miles away in Oceanside. She lived in a ranch house. So what we did is we built up her ranch house uh, and cut out an apartment called a senior residence that was a you know, part of that house with pass-through doors on both floors so Hope wouldn't be alone after I was gone. Um, that was always the plan. That was In the our plan. family, we, we, we do that. His, Michael's mom lived with us for 12 years. Yep. My parents lived with us for a short time. So we, Joanna had said, when if Dad passes first, you'll come and live with us. If you pass first, Dad will. But that was going to be a long time away. Mm-hmm. But when Michael got this prognosis, we just sat down How as many a years family. ago was the prognosis? Three years. Three. Three. Well, I'm going to say that the story has a happy ending because yes. you're here. I'm here. And I'm here. Oh, I'm 
He's Great. In, Picture yeah. of health. Yes. Yeah, he's uh, and also go, <laughs> to go back, I was given five years to live in 1975 with a different issue, with a heart issue. So this was all, all this time is gravy for me. I'm the happiest guy in the world. But I'm healthy now. I'm back. I'm as, I'm a, I'm as healthy as I've ever been. I'm going to say that uh, <laughs> attitude has a lot to do with yes. it because in the few moments that we've met, it seems that you have a very positive, very upbeat. Always did. Attitude. Always. Happy to be alive. Happy to have a wonderful life. Have a one, Had a great life. Couldn't be happier. Well, that's a takeaway for anybody yep. so that yep. when faced with something, yep. you know. I had a heart issue. I have Crohn's disease. Look, you play with the cards you're dealt and you just were move on. Also. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I also got bombed yeah, so on in 9 11 and needed, yes. needed triple bypass. So when I, when I met Michael, that <laughs> was the fourth year after his massive heart attack where he died and they brought him back. Mm -hmm. And he had a 25% survival rate for five years. I met him the fourth year. So he, he's a miracle. And then he three years ago, is. he. Um, had Crohn's colitis and was shedding weight and not being able to hold in food and mm -hmm. no one could help him and we finally did get some help. So he's in remission now. But he follows a very strict diet and oh, you look great. he's on I medication have. and he's doing good. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, he's our walking miracle. So uh, before we talk about your family, I, I, I do want to go back to something that you said about you opening your doors to students from oh, yes. around the world. That is fascinating to me. If you could just share a little bit about uh, the thought process that went into that and, and, uh, and what that experience was like for you and for your kids. Hmm. I could say how it started. Yeah, I, saw, I was sitting, so I was waiting for a job interview and I opened a local paper in Little Neck and it said, we need homes for students. We have a student from Scandinavia who's not placed. And I went home and said, Michael, you lived in Scandinavia. When Nixon was president, you left the country. And he lived in Scandinavia for, for a while. So I said, That's another story. That's yes. another That's story. Another story. So I said, Look, this is, this is Denmark. We got to help the Danes. We got to do something. So we went home. And that's how it started. We took Susie in as an exchange student for a year. That, oh, we had no, first was Anka. That. Anka. Yeah. Oh, but remember, so my, my mother, I took in people when I was a child, my mother took in people. That was so the it was model. part of my. Heritage was to take in people. And we had a tiny house, but mm -hmm. we always had people stuffed in every room. That was a frame of reference that you had. Yes. That's right. And so, I loved it. And, I didn't have and my, I when I married Hope, she she bought into it. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. So we started out with, uh, I think we might have had au pairs, then exchange students. Then later on, we found out there was a school in Manhattan, a, geos, a, a language school. It started at the time for Japanese students. And they'd come and stay in your home. You'd be a host family, two to four weeks, whatever. And they'd go to Manhattan every day and study English. And over the years, we took in students from there. We found we loved it. And then we stopped for a while, went back, and they were taking Europeans. And the best story we had was we took in, we asked for two students because we had a huge house. And um, we went to the airport to pick them up. And we were the only host family who was there. They had a driver who was going to deliver the and children. And there were 32 other students. 32 mm -hmm. students. So we get there and we get our students and one student, Rosa, comes up to us, my heart, Rosa, and says, I have to go home with you, I have to go home with you. Don't I said, leave me here, please I said, don't, leave, don't me leave me here. Don't leave me here. I said, sweetheart, this gentleman will take you to your home, but I promise Something tells you, me she went home with you. Oh, sure. <laughs> I, I promise, I said, I promise if you're not happy, you can come to my house. She, okay, we say goodbye. We get home, the phone rings. It's Rosa, you said I can come and stay with you. This man will take me to your house. We said, okay, we'll straighten it all out in the morning, come. She gets to our house, and she comes out of the van, 
and this young man, his name is Patty also, mm -hmm. um, throws his luggage on the floor and says, I'm coming, you can't make me go back in that van. He took me to a place, there were guns, there were drugs, I can't go to that family. I said, honey, you can come, but you can't stay. I only take girls. He says, well, I want to tell you I'm not gay. I said, honey, if you were gay, you could come. <laughs> but you can't come. Mm -hmm. Anyway, they came. The next morning, the four of them sat us down and said, we had a meeting. If it's all right with you, we'd like everyone to stay in the house. We said, fine. The next day, Patty tells us his girlfriend is at another house, another bad placement. I said, well, bring her here. We'll talk. She comes with her roommate that they assigned her. I said, why aren't you together? We don't know. I said, okay, she comes, so that makes... To make a long story short, short that was we six, ended up with seven. seven of them. And, and your house could accommodate... Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We had, they we shared had, rooms. They didn't we had an apartment had uh, in the attic. We had a furnished basement. We just stuffed people everywhere. And that went on then for years. We ended up... But only How seven. old were your kids when you first started taking in? They weren't living at home. They were out of the house. No, no, no. When we first oh, when started, we first started oh, yeah, we had a family meeting and they voted until no, no, they were no, in no, high school. No, we had school. three when they were... Th Three and five was our first. So yeah. I guess my question is, three and five. they grew up with yes. this being a part of your always. family yes. dynamic? Yes. Correct. Yes. There were always not. people in that So what impact, looking back on this, how did this impact your children growing up? That's an interesting question. Um, they learned to help they, others? Yes. They, I That's think that lesson. my daughter always had a big sister, uh, which was kind of fun. And for my son, he was he's another issue. He had a... 160 IQ when he was in the fourth grade. Uh, he kind of was busy reading and doing stuff. So I don't think it has much impact on him as it did on my daughter. But he helps people now. Uh, but yeah, so but but, but but it speaks to relationships. And, and right, but it carried through to them because they are in their later lives now, they're doing a lot of the same things we were doing. Right. And then we took an Angela. Oh, yes. We, well, we also adopted a girl who was in trouble, and we took in some girl who was, was being abused. Yeah, so, but that's a whole. So I, I think <laughs> I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask anyway. Uh, do you keep in touch oh, with yeah. them, or do they keep in touch with oh. you? That's seven. Those seven, which was six of oh, them. Of all the We're hundreds all of students we've had, family. that seven was a special when, group. When you say hundreds of students, oh, yes. that is not hyperbole. Oh, no, no, no. 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 No, it's, because it's, some were there for two weeks. That's just, just this one that's group just was dynamic. Incredible. Oh, it's yeah, definitely, it's well over 100. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I don't, yeah. But, but uh, that initial core of seven students. Well, that, that it was, was a, just the outstanding core. There were others before and others uh -huh. after. But we're, no, we're still in touch with Katya. We're still in touch with the, yeah, uh, but the students. seven are, first of all, we see them every, we, we travel a lot now. Mm -hmm. uh, cruise. We cruise. Mm -hmm. We go from Europe to America every year. And they meet us all, every stop, we have people meeting us. No matter where, if we're in Scandinavia, if we're in Spain, uh, if we're in the Canary Islands, <coughs> there are students there to meet they us. And they meet because, us. by the way, when they came, they're family. I got a free place to stay in New York. Mm -hmm. bring so your parents, bring we know their parents, brothers, their sisters, their brothers, their boyfriends. They, they all ended up Always at the house at some point. And they come back and visit. And they're all doctors. So the ones we just came back, two are doctors now, one's a lawyer. I mean, they're. They've all pretty accomplished kids now, and we're still very, they're like part of our family. 40s, what a yeah. meaningful and, and enriching yeah. uh, experience your children and you have had as a result of it's this. It's like having an extended family mm -hmm. all yes, over us. We go to their weddings in Europe. Uh, it's, uh, it's, and it's we real. took an Angela who was not through blood, but through distant relatives. We heard about her. 18, abused, was going to be homeless. Um, we just manipulated it so we'd be in the same place with her mm -hmm. and her mother and stepfather and we took her in and we saved her life. Yeah, she was damaged. She was so damaged she couldn't leave the house. Mm -hmm. She ended up going to Lindbrook High School uh, 
but we had to physically take her every day and bring her back. Very and when damaged. she came home, she'd curl, curl up in a little ball. Mm -hmm. If the phone rang, she would shake. She I got is her now, full scholarship to college. She graduated New Paltz with honors. She's flies around the world. She's teaching in in Tampa now. She's she's like uh, and she's married and she's got a whole life. That is wonderful. A, a wonderful story. Yes. Thank Those you for sharing. So, yes. <laughs> so, so let, let me ask you, Hope. Yes. Where did you grow up? Uh, New High Park. Great and high Brooklyn. Yeah. So New High Park and Brooklyn. Right. At what point did your paths cross? Our paths crossed in nineteen. 79 at a party in Manhattan. Uh, I was working for the Legal Aid Society at the time. Uh, I didn't want to get attached to anybody because I had this death sentence and I was only going to live for a few years so I didn't want to get attached to anybody. Uh, I was dating a woman who was very nice but I had no interest in her. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of the lawyers I worked with said, I'm having a party, I live in Chelsea, I'm having a party, a joint party with another person who lives in the house with me. He's from the Hamptons. He's got like they have Hamptons house people. And uh, why don't you come? You, you, you don't even like the girl you're dating. Come on over. I said it's not doesn't interest me at all. I'm not you know. But she literally dragged me to this party in Chelsea. Uh, that was again a mixed party between these Hamptons people. I don't like the Hamptons people. I was never a rich kid. I'm a Brooklyn boy. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, I, I, I went to this party. Uh, the woman I went with, her name was Arlene, and said all these girls with the long nails and the, you know, and she said, ladies, he's a lawyer, and they all came running up to me because they were, and I said, no, no, I'm a public defender, I don't make any money go away, <laughs> you know, I'm not what you're looking for, and over sitting in the corner was this lovely little lady uh, by herself, and the first words out of my mouth were when I sat down next to her uh, on this little kind of bench, I said, I really hate these people, and she says, so do I, <laughs> so do I, and we started chatting, and uh, we, it took us about four or five months. I went on vacation. On our second date, we moved in together. Yes. Yes. So, you know, Your come second on, date. Chase. Yes. Second well, date. What happened you, was, you knew, but you, we had you both knew. been married well, I, and divorced. We didn't have children. So we mm -hmm. knew we knew mm -hmm. what was going on. We were both had been dating. So uh, How long have you been married now? Now? 30, 38 years. 30, yeah, 38 years. 38 years, yeah. yeah. So, uh, but uh, after I met her, I, she gave me her phone number. I was going on vacation, so I called her the next day to say, I didn't just take your phone number to take it. I'm going on vacation, so if I, do, I don't call you for a while, it's not that I'm not interested. Mm -hmm. And she thought that was kind of bizarre. <laughs> just, I called to tell her I can't call, call, call you. Call me, you don't call me. Don't call to tell me. I thought that, that was. I thought it was gentlemanly was because, because, because people always took phone numbers and ripped them up and you know didn't care. Uh -huh. I thought it was the right, the, the gentlemanly thing to do. You know, so. he was interested in polite and respectful. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes, he was. Yes. And. Uh, and it, and it worked 38 years. 38 it years, and it's been a great 38 But I went to that party kicking and screaming. A friend dragged me. I had been divorced, and I had been a Hamptons person because, again, I don't like to be alone. Mm -hmm. So share houses for me were great. I was mm -hmm. not alone at night. Um, and, so, and that morning I woke up. I said, I've had it with dating. I don't care if I never get married. If I want to have a child, I'll do it on my own. I don't need this. And my friend said, please come to the party. I don't want to go alone. Literally... The women are with their makeup and everything, looking at the men and eyeing them. And I went and sat by myself. I could care less. I was just there for her. I didn't care if I spoke to anybody. Mm -hmm. He spoke to me. I spoke to him. The men were all in suits. He was in jeans and shorts. I said, okay, I'll talk <laughs> to you. But I wasn't looking. Mm -hmm. I was done. And I wasn't done. It was fate. It was fate. It, it really was. It was fate. Yeah. So it was a short courtship. 
well, I guess so. <laughs> I guess we could the say The first that. date well, really didn't happen right away because he well, was Well, I didn't want to get married because, again, I, I had this debt sentence, mm -hmm. and I surely didn't want to have children because what kind of jerk does and that? And I only wanted children because uh, mm -hmm. that was my so, life. Uh, but, uh, so we lived together. I had no intention of getting married because why would I do that? Yeah. Uh, but Hope ran daycare centers, large daycare centers at universities. Uh, and when we decided to get married because she wanted to have children, I said, you know, I've seen you with, you know, these, you, you run these places with hundreds of children. You can do this by yourself. In other words, if you want to have children, I'll do this. We'll get married. We'll have children. But know, know this, I'm not going to be around very long for you. Uh, and I, but you're so competent at this, you can do this by yourself. So that was kind of the dynamic. Hope, I have to say that there is an altruistic aspect to your personality and who you are. Uh, the fact that you ran your daycare centers and you brought those students in into your family. Um, you shared before we began this conversation that you, you were the recipient of an award. I hope I don't uh, put you on the spot by asking you to share, but I think it's worthy of sharing and people should know why you were being recognized for your altruistic work. Uh, I do volunteer work uh, for an organization called National Council of Jewish Women. When a friend asked me to join, it was right after another friend had passed away from cancer and I was helping to take care of her and I had time on my hands. And she said, you have to join this. I said, I'm not religious. I don't do things for Israel. I don't do things for Jews. I'm born Jewish, but it's not who I am. I'm just, mm -hmm. you know, totally like to help people. She said, no, no, community services. We, we could do volunteer work. I said, you know what, I like that. So I joined. While I was there, someone found this thing called the Back to School Store being done in St. Louis, which is a National Council of Jewish Women uh, section. And I loved it. And I took it to the board here and I said, I want to do this, but you have to do it on my terms. I want my own bank account. I don't want this money commingled with what you're doing. I want 100% of the money going for the children and the project. And that was my stipulation. And they said, okay. And we did it. So it's seven years down the road. What we do is... We get children from local agencies. This year we'll invite 800 indigent children. They will come to a venue. This year will be in Hewlett, uh, in one of their public schools. Mm -hmm. The children will come in, separate from the parent or guardians, who will go to a, a set up family resource room. Each child will have their own personal adult shopper. Everyone is trained, we do a training. Uh, over 300 volunteers that day, we feed them. Uh, and every child gets new, free, they select, not the shopper, new sneakers, new socks for a week, pants, shirts, underwear for a week, hats, gloves, winter coats, uh, backpacks filled with school supplies, pajamas, because my daughter told me uh, poor children don't go to pajama day at school, so we now have pajamas. Mm -hmm. We got stuffed animals. Um, this year we added shorts because we realized the first day of school some children are in shorts, so they're going to be very surprised this mm -hmm. year that I just went out and bought shorts. And we do fundraising, and um, it's a fabulous project. So Todd Kaminsky comes every year along with other dignitaries, mm -hmm. and he nominated me for a Woman of Distinction Award. Uh, every state senator has a woman that they give this award to. So I went to Albany in May, and I was very proud to do that. And then on top of that, my organization gave me a Founders Day Award, which I was just beside myself because it's a typical award given every year. And maybe when I was 80, I would have thought I might have been nominated, but I'm not old and I'm not a past president. They just said I've revitalized the section with the work that we do together. So 
Well, I, just wanna, congratulations. I just want to add yeah. that she raises all that money herself. Yeah. That, that, that does it. I mean, it's <laughs> not just, you know, that this money we magically grants, appears. Money, every anyway. every store we go into, she's in there hucking for yeah. a few dollars. So. And, and something tells me that if we completed this conversation without touching upon that, you wouldn't have minded. But not I, at all. I, don't I like think to it's talk something, about it. well, thank you. I think that the community should know what thank you're you. doing. Thank um, so thank you for your, your efforts as far as the community service is concerned. So you met at that party, and you wound up in Limbrook. Actually, we were living in Brooklyn at the time. Okay. Uh, but um, uh, we had a daughter, uh, Joanna, her name is. When she was a year old, we took her to the park, and uh, she walked up to my wife with what my wife thought were little uh, perfume vials. Little, they had little vials of glass that they put samples of perfume in. Now, I, was a I said, look, honey, it's perfume samples. And I looked and I said, honey, those are crack vials. Mm -hmm. I'm like, what? Uh, what's that? Uh, we lived on a, in a two-family house mm -hmm. uh, in Sheepshead Bay. Uh, when I realized I had defended people, I was a public defender at the time, mm -hmm. in every other house on the block, <laughs> I thought maybe it was time to get out of, uh, to get out of Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So I didn't know anything about... What, what part of Brooklyn? Sheepshead Bay. Okay. So, so I didn't know anything about... Long Island at all, mm -hmm. nothing. So I had a friend bring in every Long Island Railroad guide because mm -hmm. I was working in Brooklyn at the time. In the and I made a big chart and I asked my wife, where is, where is Valley Stream in Lindbrook? She said, why? I said, they had the two easiest commutes in because they have twice as many trains and two lines coming in. So that's where we went to live. I had never seen either place. I didn't know anything about them, but that's how we decided. So at about, when she was about a year, 18 months. 18 months. We, we bought a house in Limbrook. Uh, and I said to her, let's buy the biggest house we can because the way I was brought up, any, anybody who doesn't have a place to stay or live can stay with us. Private ownership. Uh, yeah, I didn't. Right I'm that. an old lefty. Uh, mm -hmm. So I didn't believe people should own the land. I think it belonged to everybody. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was pretty hippie back then. <laughs> <laughs> I was a non drug doing hippie. Mm -hmm. I didn't do any drugs, but I was, still had the long hair and the whole thing. So I, didn't, I, just, I wanted to buy a house big enough. Uh, so we bought an old Tudor that had, you know, seven, how many, five, six, seven bedrooms, enough made, room to. We made things. And, and they, so we could take in as people who didn't have places to stay. So um, you're revealing things about your personality and your upbringing that um, defined who you were as an adult. Right. What was the impact your parents had on you that that helped you to, to move my, in that direction? It's my mother. My mother is. His mother for me was the mother that everybody should have in life. It was, I, I didn't have a loving family, but his mother, would, I said to people, never feel sorry for me in my childhood mm -hmm. because I got his mother. Uh, my mother was old world Italian. She taught me everything, everything like a sponge that felt so good to me and I hadn't been exposed to. Well, my mother taught me from birth. First, uh, we should share everything we have, the family below. The, the, the money we had in our family, which wasn't much, mm -hmm. we were very poor growing up. Mm -hmm. We had a tiny, tiny, tiny little house and no money. But whatever we had, we shared with everybody. And if somebody needed a place to stay, uh, someone came to us once and said, uh, I have a nurse that is being put out of a home. Could she stay with you for a few days? To your parents. Uh, yeah, to my us. parents. And uh, for a few days till she finds a place. She stayed for 14 years. Uh, and, and that was not uncommon. And they were very so, poor. His parents were very poor, but he mm -hmm. didn't know it mm -hmm. because they just... And uh, so rich in other ways. Yeah, very ways. So yes. I, I was brought up with all that. Oh, wow. I also, uh, 
you know, I was brought up very, uh, I had a lot of gay men in my, yet my extended family. So there were always, I had, I had no sense of prejudice or, mm-hmm. uh, and my parents being very liberal also, same thing with minorities, blacks, what, I didn't know the difference between color. Your was, mother marched on oh, Washington yes. and met Eleanor Roosevelt. Yeah, my mother and father were met on a civil rights march mm-hmm. in 1932. And, uh, where, where was that? Washington, Washington D.C. Yeah, they were here, they were living in Brooklyn, but, okay. but they were both extremely liberal people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my mother, who was the head of the Women Laundry Workers Union at the time, went to Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, on a march and was there with her black friend, who was her best friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when they got there, they wouldn't let them stay in the same hotel. Uh, and she, my mother was incensed mm-hmm. uh, and had a meeting with Eleanor Roosevelt on the White House steps and said to Eleanor Roosevelt, this is... She how was can the head you, of housing. Yeah, head of housing. Head of housing. Mm-hmm. She said, how can you let this happen? How... You, right. you, you of all people, and Eleanor said, "The time is not right yet. I, I, I understand you. I'm on. I'm with you, but the time isn't right yet." So my mother moved out of the White Hotel into the Black Hotel, with my, uh, mm-hmm. with her friends. Mm-hmm. So that's part of my. His his mother dropped out of school when she was thirteen, because right. her mother died. Mm-hmm. So she was a, a just a wonderful a woman who taught woman. herself as well. But a, a role model in terms of convictions and yes. not. Yes. And so also sharing to and, and sharing. Father too. His father wrote from, speeches for the president. My father wrote speeches for Roosevelt. Yeah, he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He was a pretty bright guy, but he didn't have my mother's heart. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, a brilliant, brilliant man. Spoke seven languages, but he didn't have my mother's heart. No. And you have part. siblings? No. no. Uh, because uh, when they got married right before he shipped overseas mm-hmm. for for six Five years. years. So yeah. So by the time he came back, she was in her. Mid to late thirties. She didn't want more children. And, she told me. and, and I'm sorry. And hope she didn't so want you, more children. You have a sister. You, you oh me, I have a sister. Okay. Um, so l- let me go back to sure. what brought you to Limbrook. Yes. Right. You bought the house. Right. And how long did you remain as residents of Limbrook in, in that home? Until three years ago. Until three years ago. Yeah, three so what would, uh, we, we kind of described you you did what life uh, was like for your children living in a house. Mm-hmm. That where generosity and, and uh, being open-minded and, and uh, caring and respectful of those in your immediate community and communities far beyond the limber community that had to have a, a, a very positive impact on your children growing up. We hope so. I yeah. always said we, d- we didn't bring our children up with religion, we brought them up with good values. Mm-hmm. And they really did get it. We had a guidance counselor that called us in once. Do you remember that? middle school he called us in Joanna was doing something I don't know what it was protesting something or she spoke out and she was a very very quiet girl and he said I have to know more about you why is your daughter like this you know what are you telling her I said I, I don't know he goes what do you do for a living what are you doing he said oh oh my this is the worst she's <laughs> learning by example this is who she's going to be and this is what's happening it's not like you're preaching She's learning from you, so she did. And by and fourteen, she, she started volunteering at a place called Camp Anchor for autistic you know children. Anchor? Yeah. And uh, from fourteen, on, from fourteen on, that was what she was going to do for a living. We knew she was so devoted to working with autistic children and wouldn't do, think of anything else. That's how she geared her life, and that's what she does today. And she's thirty-seven. She's yeah. doing it all life. So you were in Limbrook, but then up until three years ago, 
uh, up until three years ago, and then you made the move to Oceanside. Yes. How did you wind up in Oceanside? Well, my daughter lived here. Well, my daughter, well, my daughter, a daughter lived here. I had a health issue. I have Crohn's disease, uh, and it although it hadn't bothered me throughout my life too much. Uh, my main issue was my heart issue, and I wouldn't even think about the Crohn's. But I started getting deteriorating completely. I lost about forty pounds. I was down to 120 pounds, and I'm almost six feet tall. Uh, uh, I tried some medications that didn't do anything at all. Uh, I met a br we met a brilliant man. A, a uh, he's a nutritionist. He's actually a doctor who had Crohn's disease. Someone gave us a tip that he could maybe keep me alive. Mm -hmm. So we went up to see him. Uh, we're and trying to avoid that? other medications. Uh, I didn't want Michael taking the medications that were more. Really, really severe. More mm -hmm. severe. They were virtually, you know. And I said, this guy's going to be holistic. He's a nutritionist. He's going to help us. So I went in. He looked at Michael. He said, you're out of time. I can't help you now. You have to take meds. I have to get approved within 24 hours. And he was. He started taking meds. And then we he worked said, on the diet. And he put me him. on a special diet. He said, I can maybe keep you alive a little bit longer on this diet. Uh, but it, you know the medication. You're, you're too late. You saw me too late. I can't cure you. So people come to me too late. They you come, never they, heard of them. So uh, I started on this very very rigid diet. Uh, I take this medication called Humira that you kind of shoot in your stomach every seven days, mm -hmm. uh, and he, that meant that his diet kept me alive. But the reason we wanted to move was I, I had this huge house that accommodated all these people throughout the years, and the thought of. Hope rattling around by herself right. in that house, and she couldn't be alone in that house. So my daughter lived in Oceanside in a ranch. We built the ranch up and cut out what's called a senior residence, an 800-square-foot apartment, uh, but it has pass-through doors on both floors, so she could be with part of the family, mm -hmm. could, could eat together. She wouldn't be by herself, and this way she wouldn't be alone when I died. Uh, Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm still here. For my daughter I'm, and her family. I'm, I'm healthy. I'm well, healthy we as everything now. now. I'm great, but we help fine. out with the children. It's, 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 it's a great situation. And, and how many grandchildren? Two. And, and what are their ages? Seven and four. So they're they're young, um, but not so young that they are not um, the beneficiaries of your wisdom and your experiences. And what are some of the things that you have imparted to your grandkids at this point, or what do you hope to impart to them? moving forward. Well, Allie comes to the back-to-school store to help set up since she's two. She's mm -hmm. part of the setup, and she understands, so that's wonderful. That is. Um, so she gets it. Jake Jake doesn't get anything right now. He'll he's, get it later he's on. Yeah, 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 he's too late. But, look, you're, you're, it's, it's happening by osmosis. That's right. He's, he's, he's getting there. We're that's hoping. And, yeah, and look, we, we still lead the same lives we did. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Hope's running this fantastic thing she's doing. I still do some volunteer work, and I still you know, do what I do. Uh, and uh, we hope that they you learn by example. You can tell kids all of, all of the lessons in the world. They don't hear that. Either they see it or they don't see it. Uh, so what, what are the lessons that you feel from your experiences that not only your children and grandchildren can benefit from, but as members of community, we tap into each other, or we should tap into each other as resources. And I'm going to say that Perhaps that's not done to the extent that it should be. But having said that, what are some of the things that you could share that would benefit members of the community who, who would tap into this hearing what you have to say and, and maybe influence them in a way that's going to enrich their lives from your experiences? What can you share? Well, <clears throat> the thing we're sharing with them now 
uh, trying to be relevant is there's a lot going on with immigration now and keeping people out of the country. Uh, they, you know, our gardeners, the people who do our roofs, well, they're all illegal immigrants, but they're all, they, you know, to have them view these people as individuals. So we invite, we make sure Eddie and Marcel and people that do work in our house come in and meet their children so they Part see them as human beings mm -hmm. and not as these foreigners, as if we all weren't foreigners at one point, right. you know, yeah. uh, and, and not these strangers that should be kept out of the country. Uh, as uh, We want to view everybody as a human being uh, and, and, and have value. Uh, sharing is a huge part of it. Uh, teaching them to share what they have uh, is so important. Not be possessive of, of their possessions uh, is huge for us. So, you know, if I can, we can bring those values to them, uh, yeah, I'll be happy with that. Yeah. Well, something tells me that they, um, that your family and your children and grandchildren, you know recognize that and will as your four-year-old will eventually they will. but I, it, it's, it is an important message for our community um, having lived in Oceanside for three years now um, and and myself I'm a lifelong resident of Oceanside well, we're actually in Baldwin we're a block Oceanside in. schools though. yeah Oceanside schools yes Oceanside. we're a block into Baldwin it's really but Oceanside it's, it's really Oceanside, it's the Oceanside community, community. Yes. Um, but being a lifelong resident myself I, I have seen throughout my whole life, and now as a uh, retired educator uh, from the Oceanside school system, I see how important community is and the responsibility that we as adults have for instilling in children uh, a sense of community and a sense of giving back. So what you have shared with, with us this morning uh, reinforces the importance and the value of, of giving back to the community. Um, so let me go back to my original thought though. So you've been here three years now in Oceanside. What is your feeling about the Oceanside community? Do you see that this is a place where um, we do value what community represents? That's interesting. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go back to when we decided to move to Long Island originally. I was very afraid to move to Long Island because I thought, not knowing Long Island well, that our val the values were not the values that I shared. I thought of the Jewish American princesses, the you know all of the, the the myths about Long Island that they were spoiled kids, they were all you know entitled, uh, and I was afraid to bring children into this area because I was afraid they'd catch that, and they you know my daughter would want you know a new car, or want, want fancy clothes, but we've succeeded without my daughter doing it. Limbrook fit into that scheme, and we moved to to Oceanside. To be honest with you, I thought Oceanside would be a little more like that. A little more self-centered, a little more, I'll use the word capitalistic, but you know, mm -hmm. uh, self-absorbed. I haven't found that. I found it's been exactly the same. That people are people. There will be people who are self-absorbed and, you know, money, and, you know, and money hungry everywhere. And there'll be people who are good and sharing and, and wonderful everywhere. And so you just have to find the right people. Mm -hmm. I like what's being taught in the schools. Allie's had kindergarten first, now second grade, and I walk her to school every day, and we talk. I learned about the buddy bench. I love that. If children are sitting on the buddy bench, you have to go over, and, and Ali and I talk about this at length. How we you don't have to exclude reach out. anybody. Excuse me? We never, don't exclude, never exclude yep, anyone. Um, so we have a lot of conversations, and she tells me what her teacher says and what her past teachers have said, and they are right on the mark with my heart. Mm -hmm. So she's getting what she needs from this community, and I'm thrilled. Um, 
married 38 years, and, and I don't think I'm repeating this by asking this, but I think it's worth hearing from you also again. Um, for your kids, for your, for your grandkids, for anybody who's listening, what makes for a successful partnership, relationship, marriage? What, what do you think are the key ingredients to that? Values. Val yeah, well, values, first of all, she's, she's fantastic. So, I mean, it's easy to be married to somebody like her because she's just spectacular. I mean, I love her more now than I did 38 years ago. But, uh, yeah, I don't see, people say, oh, it's, you know, opposites attract. I can't believe that. Um, obviously, with liberal people, I don't think I could be married to somebody who was anti-gay, you know, and, you know, not, you know, not pro-choice. I mean, it, we have to share our values because that's who, who she is and who we, we are. We also both professionally help poor people. That's yeah. all we did. We both turned down opportunities to make money in life. We wouldn't do it. So we are, you know, of, of one mind when it comes to helping people, and that's what binds us together. I think having respect for what she did with her life was important to me, too. I'm not, you know, I... And I respected what you did. Yeah. If you had told me you were a lawyer, I would have walked away. But I refused it. I didn't even tell her. I, didn't want to I, I never described myself as a lawyer. Yeah. Even though I, you know, I I'm a lawyer, I was a judge. Right. I teach at two law schools now. Mm -hmm. uh, I always said I was a public defender because that's the way I viewed myself. Because mm -hmm. I'm that not. Was, that was exactly what you said when I first asked you when yeah. we met. Yeah. Um, public defender. Yes, I never talk about. You know, a lawyer to me has certain connotations. Uh, and I just want to. That's not who I am. Mm -hmm. If I could, as a matter of fact, when I didn't get a job as a public defender, uh, because they weren't hiring the year I graduated law school, uh, I was offered lots of other jobs, but I had no interest. I actually left the country and moved to Denmark mm -hmm. uh, because I thought I could find uh, you know, what I wanted there mm -hmm. uh, and didn't come back until I got hired by the Legal Aid Society and could do what I wanted to do mm -hmm. because being a lawyer lawyer didn't have any... You know, any interest in me making money? I've been offered tons of money to do lots of things. Neither of us. But uh, that's not who I am. And so, respect for each other has a lot to do yeah, with it. A lot of respect. Yeah. We just all celebrated Thanksgiving, and um, an opportunity to reflect on on what we have as a family, individually, and uh, what are the things that you are most grateful for? And then I'm going to ask you to answer that in terms of. Uh, what your kids or your grandkids, from their perspectives, might be grateful for at this point in their lives. In these times, I am very grateful that we live where we live, that we have a roof over our head, and that we're well taken care of. My heart breaks every single day when I see the news and see how people are treated. I am so grateful just to be here and be lucky. And that's the most important thing to me. How, hearing what you just have to say, what is the message that we can take away from this? And maybe from your experiences, you can add some insights. How can we make a difference? I think sometimes people feel, what can I as one person do? But you have had a, a wide range of experiences. So maybe just what is it that we can do to bring about change? If we see something that we are not <coughs> happy with, what is it that we can and should be doing? In an individual situation, I've learned to speak up. On a more general situation, I protest. I, 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 I put my name to things. I, I, anyone I know, I, I, everyone knows my values. 
I won't stand for injustice. Let, let me ask this, with the midterm elections just yes. a few weeks you know, ago, um, the message that I felt was the overriding message throughout the country was go out and vote. Mm -hmm. That was the most important thing that we could impart to each other, go out and vote. Did you in any way you know, try to promote that? And if so, how did you go about doing that? We've done. I'm trying to think. Well, we've done that throughout our lives. No, we, I was at quite a few rallies, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, gun control and human rights, and had my voice heard. And whenever I heard of something, I went because mm -hmm. I knew it was important to have people there. Mm -hmm. And on the internet, uh, my voice is out there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's out there. And, yeah, but we've also made lots of phone calls uh, to get to get voters out. I mean, we've, we've done that, not this particular election, mm -hmm. but in prior elections, we've been on phones getting voters out. And I, I've actually, at one point in my life, I was, in the, I used to drive people to the polls. <laughs> do you feel, what do you think your grandkids, again, they're very young, but have they had opportunities to share what it is from their perspectives at this young age what it is that they're thankful for? Are they beginning to think about the value? They're a little young to yeah. get the big picture. Mm -hmm. They've been exposed. Uh, we've taken our seven-year-old to rallies and protests, and oh, she's, she's seen them. But it, they're a little young to be worldly and to get the values. Mm -hmm. But if, when my daughter was seven, oh, yeah. I took her to court mm -hmm. with me because I wanted her to see people who you know, I would say, how, here's a guy coming out of with handcuffs on. How old do you think he is? Uh, he's, he looks like an old man. I said, well, he's not. He's 24, and he's charged with a drug offense. I didn't have to tell my children not to do drugs. Mm -hmm. I exposed them in court mm -hmm. to drug addicts, and they knew that's not the road they wanted to be on. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, and you know, one of the, the thing I'm thankful for at this point is kind of selfish. I'm thankful that my health took a turn for the better because I really think I still have a lot to give mm -hmm. to my grandchildren. But they spend a lot of time with us. The houses are, as I said, are connected. It's a pass-through door. It's a pass-through door. door. It's, it's door one house, open. really. Right. We eat dinner together every night. So they eat breakfast with us every morning. We take her in to school every morning. Uh, they spend a lot of time with us. And it's my chance to talk mm -hmm. and give her my values. So I think if I hang around a few more years, yeah, that, I, that I still have a lot to give. Okay. So we... Um, you had a level of expectation coming into the StoryCorps conversation and opportunity. And we've been sitting here, and I can't believe how quickly the time has flown yeah. by, but with just a few minutes remaining, have the expectations been met? Surpassed. Uh, yeah. Just share the experience, the process for you of, of being a part of, of this it's kind of It's been very experience. introspective. I've sat here feeling very grateful. Um, for my husband, for my family, for everything. Um, and I didn't have that expectation coming in. I didn't know what this was. This was very enriching and very valuable. I, so this, I think I know the answer to the question, but I'll ask it again. Would you encourage others to do Absolutely. this? Absolutely, and there are people who might not think their lives are that colorful, but everybody, everyone has something to give and to learn. So what I will say is this, those people who are connected to you will hear this from you. But I, my hope is, is that there are members of the community who we are not so much connected to, we have to find ways to give them an opportunity to allow their voice to be heard. 
that's the core that, I, that I'm looking for and hoping to get through. This has been en enriching for me and meaningful for me, uh, but I hope to go beyond these conversations and, and look to have conversations with others who may not otherwise have their story told. So in any way that we can promote that, I, I, I hope that we can I would volunteer do that. to help you. Sure. Sure. Tell, tell us what you'd like us to do and we'll, we'll do it. We're happy to volunteer <laughs> if you need help. I think there's nothing that you need to do differently. Just being who you guys are and just okay. being members of the community, we'll, we'll get it out there. So I want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for allowing me to hear your story and allowing others to hear your story. I can say beyond the shadow of a doubt that they will absolutely have takeaways from the conversations uh, and, the, and the, you know, the things that you shared this, this morning. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your and your efforts for your efforts doing this. Yeah. On behalf of the community, Great. thank you. You've been listening to Spoilers Alerts with Tom Capone. We hope you can join us for our next episode coming soon. So, uh, just when that was coming to an end, uh, the. Legal Aid Society had gone on a strike, a very ill-advised strike. I had told my people not to go out. I was a supervisor at the time, so I wasn't out. <clears throat> that the mayor was Giuliani. They said, he's bluffing. I said, I know this guy. <laughs> he's not bluffing. Uh, sure enough, uh, after one day of strike, he said, I'm canceling the contract if you don't go back to work. They went back to work. He slashed the budget $10 million and said, <clears throat> I don't like you guys. I think I can do this better privately. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to contract out 20% uh, of your work, but on a county basis. One in Brooklyn, one in Bronx, one in Queens, one in Manhattan. Uh, so uh, he took a bid the first year. He said, put in proposals. Everybody, they got hundreds of proposals on how to do this. and take them. Uh, he, got, he took one in the Queens, one in the Bronx. He turned down all of the Manhattan proposals, didn't like them. Mm -hmm. I got a call from the administration said, we think about leaving legal aid. We need to do your own public defender office. We had joked for years uh, when I worked for legal aid, what if we could get rid of management, get rid of the union, get rid of it, and we could have Mike's legal aid. You could run it, we could all work for you, and we'd be thrilled, and we wouldn't have to worry about all this crap any longer. So I was called and they asked me to put in a bid, and I got okay. the contract. Mm -hmm. So I got the contract to defend, originally, the 13,000 people in New York, and I got to hire. I said, I'm not going to tell anybody, because I don't want to invade. I started getting calls from all over the country. People that worked for me 20 years ago, that were in private practice, some in Florida, some in all said, this was our dream. We're closing down our practices. We're all going to come back and work for you. So I ended up hiring like an all-star, like of the hundreds of lawyers that worked for me, I picked the 30 best. And we ended up averaging 25 years experience, which was 20 more years than any other defender office in the country. Were you the sole purpose responsible for hiring, or did you have a committee? Oh, yes. No, no, no. no. I, was the, I was the direct. I was everything. So you hired 30 people. I, yeah. Was there, what was it that, that you saw? That was lawyers. Lawyers. Yeah. Uh, I had social workers, investigators. So, you know, I had a lot of stuff. What was it that, that um, you looked for in each of them? They, had, they were being... I interviewed for different uh, positions, uh, but what was it that they you looked were, for? They were I wanted the best trial lawyers I can get my hands on. I knew that if you could, the best trial lawyers would get the best pleas also. 99% of the cases do not go to trial. Mm -hmm. They've disposed of it. But the backup has to be 
if you don't give me this plea, I'm going to try it and I'm going to kick your ass. Mm-hmm. Uh, after we were in existence for one year, the DA in Manhattan, his name was Robert Morgenthau, said, I met him at a party, mm-hmm. said, we have a whole different set of offers for your people than we do for the, all the rest, from legal aid and everybody else, because we know something. We've gone to trial against you guys. We lose 70% of our cases. I got an 80% conviction rate against everybody else. I lose 70% of you guys. So we have a whole different set of offers. So it's not just the few cases we try. It's going to be the, we ended up with 20,000 cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of those clients are going to get better deals and better pleas. I wanted talent. And I wanted, but I wanted people to be part of my family. I ran it different from everything else. I wanted people that would eat lunch together, that would go to lunch, that would go to each other's houses. I wanted it to be a big family. And I threw them all out at uh, at five o'clock. Go home, go home, see your families. Okay, we're good. Well, also my theory was, I would only pay myself ten percent more than my supervisors, even though I was the CEO and the and the mm-hmm. founder and the director. My supervisors could only make 10% more than my lawyers. Uh, and that's the way we set up the salary structure. When bonus time came, because I always, I always came in under budget, but I had lots of extra money. Everybody in my office got the same bonus. My secretary and I took the same dollar amount. And it bought a lot of loyalty, meaning people knew I wasn't stealing all the money. I underpaid myself by 50, by 50%. So I imagine that the core group that you hired stayed with you for, forever. forever. Never left. Until I left. Until I left three years ago, mm-hmm. not a, I didn't lose it. Literally lost nothing. So how long a period of time was that? 17 years. Working no, with that same core group? Never left. It was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. We had literally no turnover. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless we lost one or two of the younger people whose... Uh, like their husband got a job somewhere else in the country. Not one person in 17 years left to take another job uh, to go to another place. And I believe me, they were underpaid. The people that came out of private practice, I was paying them half what they were making. Mm-hmm. But I said, I'm going to give you a life back. I'm giving you six weeks vacation. I don't want to see you. I don't want to know from you. I want you out of the office by 5 o'clock because I want you to have a good life with your families. If you're happy, you'll make a better lawyer than somebody who's unhappy. I can't win you with money. I'm not going to pay you enough. I have to win you with, with family. And sure enough, people look forward to coming to work every day. So what, what was the um, byproduct of that in terms of the quality of work that you saw? It was unbelievable. We had a reputation around the country for being the defender. I mean, we were light years ahead. The judges used to tell us it's like being on a different planet than everything else. You guys are so competent. Our evaluations, everybody, and the clients knew about it. If we go, like we split arraignments with legal aid. Mm-hmm. When we went into arraignments, it would, the pens were back there. There could be 400 people in the pens. When it got word that the New York County Defender Services was in arraignments, a big cheer would go up in the pens. The clients knew about it. It was really, it was, it was really a dream come true for me to have it unfettered. Nobody bothered me. I ran it exactly the way I wanted. I set salaries. I did the hiring. I did everything. And it was, I, the city, to its credit, gave me the money, never asked me a question about it. It was great. Michael, I have to ask this question. Sure. As we are winding up here, sure. um, you, you, you had a very, very interesting uh, career, interesting life, and I know that you're retired now. Yep. And as somebody who's newly retired, uh, how do you go from be doing something that you love, where you are involved in impacting the lives of others on a daily basis for an extended period of time, for over 30 years, how has that transition been for you in your retirement? and what? Advice can you give 
new retirees like me? I've actually surprised myself. I really needed to take a deep breath for a year. <laughs> you know, it was a hectic, pressure-filled, you know, and I had a health issue. That was one of the reasons I left a year earlier. I was 69 when I, I left. I really didn't want to do anything for a year, but I still teach uh, and volunteer at Hofstra Law School. Mm -hmm. I still do career advice. I do a lot of uh, career uh, you know, advice to people who are looking to be public defenders or prosecutors or anything, but I still teach a class uh, twice a year at Hofstra on how to try a case. It's basically a, 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 a methods course. Get up, let's, we're gonna do a trial. I'm sure that your methods are very different from the professor that you had at St. John's. Very, very, very different. <laughs> Actually, different than most professors. I really, oh, I, I want to get up people. I want you, people you to get involved. You don't subscribe to the Socratic <coughs> method. Not at all. Not at all. You got to do it. You can't learn it by reading it. You can't learn it by. You have to learn it by doing it. Mm -hmm. Trial work is only one out of, I think, out of a hundred. So it might be two out of a hundred lawyers ever see a courtroom. Mm -hmm. uh, those are a rare breed. And you don't have to be brilliant. It doesn't take rocket science, but you have to have a good sense of the world, a good sense of yourself, and you have to have a little bit of gift to speak. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, if you're tremendously introverted, it's a real struggle. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't mean you're not nervous before you get up for a jury. You will be nervous, but can you conquer that and still sell it? Mm -hmm. uh, but you have to have some kind of, for what I do, as opposed to a prosecutor, is very different. Mm -hmm. You have to have, I can go to a bar, bar, I can point out the prosecutors and defendants. Mm -hmm difference between the heart and soul of people who really want to help or people who are just politically motivated and want to get a, a, better, a stepping stone to a better job is a different animal for me. And I could, I used to go to job fairs uh, at NYU. I could see 100 people in a day. And mm -hmm. those two, I want you two. <laughs> the other 98 could buy. Just like that, or after some brief period of exchange yeah, yeah. between you Sit and Sit down, let's talk. After three minutes, mm -hmm. you two to stay, the rest of you go, we gotta talk a little bit more. And, and can you crystallize what it is in those two or three minutes that? It's really, it's hard to put, you know, I didn't trust anybody else to do it because nobody else could do it. In other words, I've always had staff that could do the interviewing, but I never trusted them to do it. And when I did it, and they sat next to me, they say, oh, it, it the interview itself, though. yes. But the interview itself, you have to be able to dig further than, this is your resume, mm -hmm. I see you did a clerkship for a judge. So what? I know you can read, I know you can write. You went to Harvard Law School. Yes, you can write. Uh, that's not what I'm Give looking for. Give me something for. that's going to set you apart. <clears throat> yes, now, yeah, what? Yeah, okay, hold it, you're a waitress. Now let's talk about that. How did you handle, where was it, in a bar? How did you handle yourself when a guy got fresh? How did you handle yourself when they did this? How, you, I want to know what makes you tick mm -hmm. as a person rather than all that, econo that academic stuff. Okay, the, the, the academic stuff is, I can shake a tree and get a hundred good lawyers out of the best law schools in the country. But what, who are you? Mm -hmm. What do you know? How, I, I like the fact you, waitresses, shoe salesmen, something that got you dealing with the public in difficult situations. Because let me tell you, it's gonna be difficult. The judge wants to put your client in jail. The DA wants to put your client in jail. The, the prosecutor wants to put your client in jail. The victim surely wants to put you. <clears throat> Somebody's got to stand there and make sure they do it right. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? You, you have to be a, have a little, little spine for that. Michael, last question. Sure. Uh, I, I think I asked this question the last time we spoke, and I'm going to ask it again now as we are winding down here. Uh, coming into our conversation sure. today, you had a, a level of expectation did this conversation 
Sure. Meet the expectation it, it that you right. have. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's great. Right. You know, I can go on with stories. My son wrote me a list of stories for days if you want. But this got me, well, I think you got my, the essence mm -hmm. out of this. I think you got where you wanted, where you wanted to go and surely where I wanted to go. I, I hope that there are takeaways for those who are listening. And I think that you provided people with, with takeaways Hopefully. from a very interesting life and, and perspective and insights. So I thank you for all of those. And thank you for being a part of this conversation. Thank you for having me. Okay. Okay.